Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for this morning. We ask that you would uh, open our hearts and our minds and our souls to receive this morning from you. We believe your word is true and it is good and trustworthy and life-giving. Yeah, Lord, would you speak through your word this morning in your name. Amen. Amen. Again, really glad to see you. It's a Good to see so many of you, and if you're new or visiting, we just especially want to extend a warm welcome to you this morning. Glad you're here. Come, come find me after the service. Love to say hi. We are in the middle of a series through First Thessalonians, and we come across this passage this morning, the coming of the Lord. I remember an early conversation with our oldest son, Rowan. I think he was five or six, and we were, we were outside swinging, and Rowan wanted to know about what happens when we die. You know, just low-key stuff. And, uh, and so we were talking about how if, you know, as we believe in Jesus, if we die, we are with him. We go to be with him. And we're, you know, you're okay, kind of thing. And he was like, yeah, okay, great, love that. And then I said, but the Bible also talks about Jesus coming back and the resurrection of those who have passed away and those coming with him and, and all that that kind of involves as Jesus comes back to sort of set things right on earth. And I remember Rowan going, like, great-grandma so-and-so is coming back too? <laughs> and and uh, going, yeah, as far as I know. Well, yeah, I'm not totally sure, but I, I think, she's, think she's coming. And, and, and trying to emphasize to him that Jesus, as Christians, we believe that Jesus does indeed return. He will return to come to set things right in his world, to bring his justice and his grace and to get rid of evil once and for all and to establish his kingdom and uh, to bring the resurrection of the dead, as we, as we say in the creed. And he's come to make all things new. And I said, you know, at the end of Revelation, God says, I want to wipe every, every tear from your eyes, right? That God comes back to undo all the bad things and comes to make his dwelling with us and how that's really good. And, uh, and Rowan would ask, but when is he coming back, Daddy? Like, can we get a time frame on that? I said, I just don't know. I don't know, bud. We have a lot of questions, don't we, about what happens when we die or when a loved one passes away, and probably most of us have lost friends or family members at some point in our lives. Every day there's new names in the obituaries, right? Um, It's not uncommon. It's part of living in a broken world, but there's still a sting to that, right? It's not unusual to hear someone's passed away, but there's still a grief and a sadness that comes uh, with each loss. There's a, a stark reminder that that is not right, that things are not well. And that sense of grief isn't new to our generation. It's a, it's a sense of loss and mourning that the generation that Paul is writing to in this letter also experienced. The Thessalonians also wondered what happened to those who had died. And it seems like when we, when we look at the letter as a whole and why Paul is writing the letter to them, one of the questions that they had is, hey, in our church, some of the people who love Jesus and have been following him, they've passed away. And like, as far as we know, Jesus hasn't come back. Are they missing out on something? Like when he shows up again, are they out of the loop because they died? What happens to them? Are they all right? Are they part of God's sort of final consummation and salvation at the end of all things? What, what do we do with that? And Paul writes to say, don't be uninformed. Right? There's something that we can say about that, and he wants to answer those questions. So let's look again. We're going to kind of walk through the passage. Look again at verse 13. If you have a Bible in front of you or you have a phone with a Bible, 
1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13, Paul says, We do not want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. And that sense of sleep, that's common in the Bible to talk about being dead. Um, but it makes more sense later because he's going to talk about people waking up again. Um, so that's a common metaphor. But, but think about what Paul's saying in terms of we don't want you to be uninformed. Right? There's a sense here that Paul is saying, this is something you can know. We can have lots of questions about this, and there's an element of mystery to what happens around death, of course. But he does say here there's something you can have assurance about. There's something worth knowing here. Some, there's some part of this mystery that we can actually be settled on, and it's worth being taught about. It's worth knowing about. And what does he say? Second half of verse 13, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve, as others do, who have no hope. What's Paul saying? Is he saying we shouldn't be sad? No. He doesn't say don't grieve. Grief can be a healthy process, right, for dealing with all sorts of trauma and brokenness and, and issues in our lives. We often have to walk through grief. But Paul's point here is that as Christians, we grieve differently than those who don't know Jesus. And our grief is different, not because we're not sad the person has passed away and we don't mourn the loss of their presence in our lives. It's different because we realize that death is not the end for that person. And we have an assurance of hope. And not just sort of a vague sense of optimism, not hope like I really hope this happens, you know, and if I kind of squint hard enough, I'll kind of drum something up. But hope as in a confidence in God's character, in who he is. And I can think of many moments, uh, especially in palliative care at the bedside of a loved one, and particularly the bedside of a Christian. And, and Pastor Velma can, can attest to this as well, that sometimes there's a different sense in the room. Uh, there's still grief, and it can sometimes be a profound sense of grief. But, but, there is an underlying thread of hope that though this person is dying, if they have been in Jesus and they know him, uh, there's a, just a, this sense that they'll be all right. They will be well. And you can note that even in, in the difference at a Christian funeral sometimes, that, that uh, our grief is different. We grieve with a sense of hope, of assurance and confidence in Jesus, that those who are in Christ are well, in the presence of God. And we can, we can take hope knowing that they're okay. And for some who have been going through deep pain, there's a real sense of hope knowing the pain is over for them. Others may have no hope, but we do have hope. How much more then are we called to share the reason for our hope with those who don't know? That in those moments, those final moments, to help those who are grieving and the one who's passing to know the truth and the hope that they can have in Jesus. And why do we have hope? Well, Paul starts to talk about it in the next verse. So look at verse 14. He said, basically, this is the reason for the hope. He says, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, that's the basis for Paul's hope. The hope that we have for life beyond death is anchored in the historical reality of the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
This is what Paul points back to. This is the climax of human history, that God himself has come and took on flesh, and he went to the cross for our sins and for the evil in our world. And he died for those sins so that the power and the curse of those sins could be broken so that we would no longer be guilty of our sin. And then through his resurrection, by dying and coming back to life, he beat the power of death so that all who trust and believe in him too can come through death and out the other end into new life. And that's the salvation hope that we have as Christians. Paul anchors his hope in that reality. Even so, through Jesus, he says in verse 14, who died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So Christians who have died before Jesus returns don't miss out on Jesus' second coming. It's not like they're kind of second class somewhere over there kind of waiting. In fact, Paul says they will be with him when he returns. They get to kind of come along for the ride. And that's a good reason for calling them asleep because they will indeed reawaken. And that's where Paul in some ways is kind of poking at death, saying you're nothing more than sleep. You don't get the final say. And what he means by this, of course, is resurrection. They will be back in new life in resurrection. I'm going to read the next few verses just quickly, and then we might uh, turn back to them. But let me read this again just so it's fresh in our minds. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Again, he's assuring them those who have died, though they're, they're full on in this situation as Jesus comes back. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, the voice of the archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God. All of that is meant to evoke alarm clock sounds, right? Like, wake up, you dead sleeper, wake up, he's come back. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them. So there's this sense that the dead, when Jesus returns, the dead come back to life and are resurrected into new life with God. What is resurrection? It's worth stopping to think about because I think often we, we misconstrue the hope we have and what resurrection is all about. Often we will talk about the Christian life as getting to know Jesus, giving your heart to him so you can get to heaven when you die. Um, almost like that's the end goal, right? You just get, get out of here, get to get to heaven when you die. And th th that's true. If you believe in Jesus, you will be in his presence when you die, right? Much like the thief on the cross. Uh, Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise, right? When, when, when you die, you will be with me. That's good. That's a wonderful thing. We're glad for that. Um, but that is a temporary situation. That is not the full picture of the end. The soul is in heaven with the Lord. The body's dead in the ground. And that is not the final vision that the Bible holds out for us, friends. Sometimes you'll hear people say as well, and it's easy to think this way, well, my body doesn't really matter, so I'll do whatever I want with it. It's the soul that really matters, right? And if you read the Bible, you have to start to go, well, eh, is it? Really? Are you sure? Right? What is, how does God make human beings in Genesis? What does he do? He takes dirt, 
and then he breathes in his divine breath, right? And man becomes a living soul. The human being is meant to be a spirit and, and dirt. You're a dirtling. You know, you're a, you're a dirt person. We're earthlings. A spirit and earth hybrid being. That's what being human is. And what does God say about that? It's good, right, in Genesis. Your body is not a bad thing. Your body, God says, is good. Your physicality is good. It's not as Christians that we believe it's only your soul that matters and your body doesn't matter. That's not Christian. God says it's good. In fact, it's very, very good. You're meant to be embodied. That's what it means to be human. Now, of course, all sorts of things go wrong with our bodies, right? All of us can say, yes, this part hurts today, and this bit doesn't work, and this bit gets cancer, and that bit isn't functioning. All sorts of things go wrong, but that's the result of living in a broken world as we wait for Jesus to come back. That's a sin problem. That's not a body problem. And Jesus came to deal with our sin, not to get rid of our bodies. And that's why the hope of the Christian is not to be disembodied in heaven, like with wings and sitting on clouds with harps and eating like cream cheese. Was it the Philadelphia cream cheese commercials, right? No, like that's garbage. That's not the Christian idea of, of what happens when you die. You don't get to sit and eat cream cheese, unfortunately. The resurrection is about new bodily life, new bodily life. And the Gospels make a really important point of this, right? What happens when Jesus is resurrected and he shows up with the disciples? What do they think he is? They think he's a ghost, which means a spirit without a body, right? And what does Jesus do? He goes, I'm not a ghost. Look, I've got wounds from when you guys, you know, when I was killed just a bit ago. Come see. And what's he do? He says, come look at the empirical evidence for why it's still me. Come see the evidence. This is not blind faith. Come see the evidence. It's really me. Right? And Thomas we, gets a bad rap for being a doubter. No, no. He says, I won't believe until I see it. I need to know it's really him. And he touches the wound in the side and goes, my Lord and my God. This is really him. And then what else does Jesus say? I'm going to eat fish. Um, eats the fish. It doesn't sort of fall through him onto the floor. No. It goes into his tummy, right? Because he goes, it's really me. It's really me. Newly embodied, resurrected. Not a spirit. Resurrected. It's really him. You're not destined to be angels on clouds with little wings. And you might go, well, what about Paul? Doesn't he say, oh, my, my, my body's a tent. Doesn't that mean it's bad? No, no. That just means it's temporary and it's going to wear out. It's going to wear out. It's not evil. So what's resurrection mean? Resurrection does not mean going to heaven when you die. That's just going to heaven when you die, right? That's, that's fine. Resurrection is a state of newly re-embodied life after death. So you have life after death. That's your going to heaven bit. But the Bible talks about life after life after death. The resurrection of Jesus points to that. Newly embodied life. Not reincarnation, resurrection. Newly embodied life. And that's what Paul gets on about in verse 16, right? He says, the Lord will descend 
with the cry of command and the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God summoning the dead to awaken and the dead arise from their graves into the realm of the living and the dead are and the so the dead whoop, up they go why are we getting them out of graves what's in the what's in the ground the body body's in the ground why are we getting it because god thinks your body matters that's why death death is is tragic because the bits of you your spiritual part and your physical part get separated that's that's bad god wants to remedy that and he puts us back together again at the resurrection newly re-embodied life and so the dead get to whoop get to be part of that and then the living who still have their bodies right here we go they get caught up together into the air to meet the returning king jesus resurrection and so jesus is bringing with him the souls of the saints who have died and all those who will be with him at the second coming and their bodies are resurrected and get put back together and then he comes to rule and reign once more forever it's amazing it's amazing it's the astounding hope that we have he says i don't want you to be uninformed this is the hope that we are looking forward to yeah we look forward to heaven sure yeah great but we look forward also to the resurrection of the dead because of Jesus' own resurrection points to this now notice also the direction of the movement is worth paying attention to here right jesus is coming from heaven to earth with the saints to establish his kingdom and it seems clear to me though there's other views on this but it's it's clear to me that jesus is coming his return and the resurrection and sort of the final judgment are all sort of happening in one fell swoop it's sort of one event i don't believe in multiple returns of jesus where jesus is up and down up for a bit down for a bit up for a bit kind of resurrecting not not. now you might ask if jesus is coming down why are we going up in the air to meet him aren't we getting snatched away to go back up to heaven like doesn't just jesus kind of come down and kind of say hi and peek his head down hello and then some get kind of brought up to him and then he goes whoop and whisks you back back off to heaven um and it may kind of seem that way but there's two reasons i'm going to argue that that's not what's happening um both from the text i think again the direction is very clearly downward that jesus is coming down back to earth to reestablish a new heavens and a new earth and again if you want to learn more about that you can come to reframe tonight but it seems that that paul is picking up a passage from israel's scriptures from zechariah and zechariah 14 5 is a passage about the day of the lord and this was israel's hope that god would come again yahweh would show up and he would deal with the evil and brokenness in the world he was going to set things right and we read a passage where when yahweh shows up he's descending to earth to deal with earth and he's bringing his holy ones with him and that sounds a lot like what paul's picking up here so from the 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 broader sense of israel's scriptures the direction is always yahweh come and set things right on earth right your kingdom come your will be done where here on earth So the day of the lord is a downward movement from god's space into our space of god coming to set things right and so contextually 
First Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18 is not about escaping earth because earth's having a bad time. No, no. This is about Jesus coming to set things right. Presumably after a bad time, but this is about Jesus coming to set things right. And uh, all of us being part of that victory. The, so the first thing is contextually the movement's downward. The second thing is exegetically in the Greek the movement's downward as well. This phrase in verse 17 about meeting the Lord in the air has this sense, the sense of meeting here is the same idea that's used when a royal dignitary comes to visit. And I wondered if the kids could help me with this. Are you kids bored and your boxes are done? Do you want to come up and help me with something? They're like, no, it's terrifying. What are you talking about? If you don't, that's fine. But imagine this. You have a group of children here. This happens to me just about every day. There's a group of children waiting for someone to come back. And the person who's coming back from work, here they come, and they open the door. And what happens, especially if it's summertime? The kids come running to meet the person coming to see them, right? And then what do I do? I whisk them off from where I came? No. They come out to meet me, if it's my kids and I'm coming home from work. They come out to meet me, and then what do we do? They come with me back into the house. It's the same picture that Paul picks up here in the Greek of a royal dignitary coming to a village. And what you would have is a royal person coming. Oh, the girls are coming up. Oh, do you want to be my helpers? You do? Okay. Very good. There you are. Brilliant. Now, should we make, should we make Papa come? Do you want to come and be our returning king? Brilliant. Look at him. Whoa, yeah. We give him a hand. What's happening? It's happening without me even. Look. It happened without me even having to explain it. What did they do? They went to meet him, to be with him. The idea at the time was a royal dignitary shows up. What do you do? The royal dignitary is coming into the city. The people leave their homes to go meet them and then come with them in procession back into the city. That's the same word that Paul's using here. You've seen that if you've read the passage about Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, right? What happens? Jesus is coming on the donkey. What do the people do? They go out to meet him. And what happens when all the people go out to meet him? What does Jesus do? Oh, back to Bethlehem. Let's go. No. What's he do? He's going into the city. They come out to meet him. They're part of the royal procession. What are they doing? They're throwing their cloaks on the road. They're grabbing palm branches. It's the king returning, they're saying. Right? It's the king who's come. We've come out to meet him. And now we come with him in royal procession back to the city. This passage is not about heading off to heaven. This is about meeting Jesus in the air as he comes back to set things right on earth. I mean, that, you don't have to agree with that, but that seems, it seems quite clear to me, both contextually and exegetically, that that's what's going on. He's going into the city. The people come out to greet him. And in the same sense, Paul's describing that here. We get to go up and meet Jesus in the air as he is coming with the saints back to set things right here on earth.
What's the point of all of that, though? That's a lot of sort of theology. What's the goal of all of that for us? Well, look again at verse 18. Paul tells us, the last verse, encourage one another with these words. The point of teaching about Jesus' return is meant to bring comfort and hope. It's not meant to give you fear. It's not meant to divide people. It's meant to give us a deep sense that God has got us, whether we face death, whether your loved ones have died, that he has got us beyond the other side of death. And there's an assurance here for us. If you're here this morning and your body is not well, and it's broken, or it's got cancer, or you've got stuff, and it's been tough, and you've had to go see doctors, and it's an ongoing thing, and, and you're, you know, you're trying to work that out, and there's God's grace in this life where there's moments of healing and moments where he uses doctors to bring healing, there's also moments where there isn't healing, and that's really hard. But we have a hope and assurance here that at the end of our lives, when we put our trust and faith in Jesus, he's got us. And not only does he have us, but our bodies will be made well. It reframes how we think about death, I think. And as I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking about this song, which we're going to play during communion. And one of the lines in this song talks about resurrection. It says, Come behold the wondrous mystery, slain by death the God of life, but no grave could e'er restrain him. Praise the Lord, he is alive. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected. And now here's the part that connects to our passage this morning as we will be when he comes. What a foretaste of deliverance. How unwavering our hope. Christ in power resurrected. Remember how Paul points back to Jesus' resurrection, says this is why? Because there will come a day where what the Father has done for the Son, God will do for all of us. As we will be when he comes. So maybe today you're facing the reality of death or brokenness, or you're aware of <laughs> how worn out you maybe feel. Here today, the assurance of rest and hope and healing, that's for you in Jesus. That he will see you alive and well at the end. And he calls you to faith and hope here and now to live for him. Let's pray to that end, and we're going to prepare to come to the table this morning. Jesus, I want to thank you so much for your word and for the hope that you've given us of your return. We speak often of being between two advents, your first arrival and your second arrival. Lord, we look forward to your return and we thank you that you will come and set things right. Lord, we thank you that that gives us a sense of hope and trust that even in the dark times in our lives and in our world, when we hear about earthquakes and issues in the news and stuff in our country and issues in our family. Lord, that you care about those things and that you will come and wipe the tears from our eyes on that day. Jesus, I pray that this morning as we come to this table, 
we would recognize again uh, how much we need you, that you sustain us and you provide for us as we look forward to your return. Thank you, Lord.